Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world. And of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and The Network Incorporated. They do them on the streets, of course, where the gangs hang. They'll do them in courts by advocacy. They'll go into the jails. Uh, They'll mentor young people really where they are, middle schools, high schools, uh, parties, rec centers, uh, at home, on the phone. An unusual crew of street workers, including ex-felons, intervened to reduce gang-related violence. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It began in the year 2000 when 15-year-old Jennifer Rivera was fatally shot at point-blank range in Providence, Rhode Island. That was the day before she was scheduled to testify as a witness in a murder trial. The heartbreaking crime stunned the community and led to the establishment of the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. Its mission is to prevent future tragedies by intervening with troubled youth. Alfred Amuri, an ex-inmate now seeking to give back to society, is a street worker at the Institute trying to reduce gang violence. Entering a territory is the first step. Once you've entered a territory, making the right connections is the second step. Being accepted is another step. So there's, you know, there's a few things you have to do to gain their trust, you know, people in the community, because the first thing they think is these street workers are cops. And we have to prove to them that we're not cops, you know. We're ex-felons that, at the same time, we could be here with you and the cops might arrest us because we're ex-felons. So we're taking a risk coming out here, talking to you, trying to see, listen, there's other things you can do besides this. The Institute takes a gamble by employing people who've committed serious crimes to become peacemakers in gang territory. But like alcoholics who get sober and are well-positioned to understand others trapped in addiction, ex-felons bring a certain street cred when interacting with kids who are at risk. I want you to, I want you to call me, and you know, I'll give your mom and, and my sister the card. Call me, and she's going to start doing, uh, she's going to be doing community service at... Alfred Amuri served 14 years for a second-degree murder he committed in 1995. So I couldn't even understand it myself. I can't even give you the understanding for it today, except for I was extremely angry and not trying to make excuse for my behavior. But I ended up, you know, getting locked up and sentenced and getting sentenced to 40 years with 25 to serve. And basically, I grew up in a penal system, but I tried to, uh, you know, 
better myself. As the years went on, I got into a program in a prison called SCORE. It stands for Special Community Outreach Education, which organizes visits to prisons by junior and senior high school students. In a carefully controlled setting, the kids, some of them already troubled, interact with inmates and learn about the consequences of poor decisions. Help me realize that uh, the situation that was going on in our society, in our country, uh, I was part of that and I was a big part of this, you know, messed up generation that was causing trouble. So I wanted to, you know, help kids because I didn't want to see any kids in prison doing what I was doing. You, you, were, you were how old when you went to prison? I was, uh, I just turned 20. As I looked around prison, I saw a lot of young folks coming into prison that were as young as myself. And I remembered basically the feeling I had when I first went to prison. And I felt lost and confused. So, you know, it, it, it affects you after a while. You're like, wow, you know, young kids are coming to prison and they're giving them these big time. They're doing a lot of time. And no one's really telling these kids what's going on. You know, society is like basically fast-paced and is moving on. And if a kid commits a crime, it's like, okay, let's just, you know, throw them away. We're not going to try to rehabilitate. We're just going to put them in this punitive system and let them do time. So I was like, wow, this is crazy. This is crazy when I seen so many young folks as I was getting older. So I got involved in the school program and started talking to youth. How serious is the problem of street violence here in Providence, Rhode Island? It's serious. Tenny Oded Gross, a former Israeli army sergeant now living in Providence, is executive director of the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. Providence is the third poorest city in the country for children. We were tied with New Orleans until Katrina. Second biggest Dominican population in the country, third biggest Cambodian population. People who left war zones like Liberia, very diverse, uh, very poor uh, parts of the city. That poverty and dropout rates are very high. And just the local, just the general culture of gangs and information we have now in our society and the availability of weapons on the 95 corridor and drugs create a really deadly cocktail. And what is your understanding of the dynamics of violence, how it snowballs? It, it goes very quickly, going back to Israel. One incident of kidnapping three soldiers a few years ago created a Lebanon war again, the second one we had a few years ago, right? It's a little skirmish here. So here could be a text or it could be a Facebook that humiliates another side of town and it forces the other side of town now to react. You know, it could be drinking and running into each other in a party and someone brings a weapon and we're off to the races. Could be a fistfight, which you had in the past. We grew up with fistfights that someone lost and didn't like it and they're coming back with a weapon. There's so many opportunities when you're angry, upset, maybe you didn't eat, maybe your parents are in jail. Uh, I think we have like close to a thousand kids in our school system whose parents are in jail. It's plenty of anger and loneliness and depression. So, and so you're sa you're saying in these conditions, it, it simply doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to trigger uh, a violent reaction. In fact, because so many of the kids are kind by nature, 
a lot more could happen. And really, they stop most of the fights. And community members stop a lot. There's a few, a small percentage of people who really drive a lot of the violence. Before taking up his duties in Rhode Island, Tenny Gross had worked for the Ten Point Coalition, an ecumenical program in Boston formed by local clergy to address an eruption of youth violence. There, he gained an appreciation of the role that street workers can play in quelling gang activity. At his institute in Providence, the street workers attend seminars in nonviolence and are trained in building alliances with school personnel, social service agencies, local residents, and the police. Alfred Amuri. Basically, it's like when you enter a gang's territory, you know, when you enter a gang's territory, this is the first thing they teach you. You're a guest, and you have to realize you're a guest. You can't say, okay, no, these streets don't belong to them. You have to kind of, you know, accept that, okay, this is a public street, but they're trying to run this street. I'm not going to tell them not to run this street. Eventually, I'm going to tell them, you know, you're bigger than this street. You don't need this street. You can do so much more. But in the beginning is the approach that, that really, you know, validates who you are in, in the community. And does that mean that you have to approach them with some humility? Yeah. Often you have to, you know. Now, if you're entering a community of people who like to show how tough they are, mm. is coming with humility uh, a, a potential disadvantage? I would say for the everyday person, yes, it is. But when you're, you know, when you know how to communicate the language of the streets, there's a difference there. How you approach an individual, you cannot show an individual that you're too soft. For example too too you know too scared of them or whatever you just you show enough respect to the point where they will give you respect back the landscape of urban violence is a battlefield where nearly everyone is carrying deep emotional wounds whether from poverty neglect addiction prejudice self-hatred the victims and perpetrators have a profound need to heal when I uh, got out, out of prison, I made parole. I had a job as an interpreter. Uh, I speak five languages, so... Which? Uh, <laughs> I speak... I don't even want to get into the languages I speak, but I speak Italian, Spanish, French, English, and African dialect. So when I got out of prison, I worked as a translator. But uh, I kind of... Just getting out and being around so many people, I wasn't comfortable, so I didn't really like the job right away. Prior to that, I, I knew about the Institute, and I told a friend of mine who worked here at the Institute that, yeah, I would like to get a job over there, man, and working with kids. I know that pretty well. I've been working with them for a while. I can do that, you know? And what was your motivation for wanting to get a job working with kids? Well, I thought, to me, I thought it would be something that I'm, I'm pretty good at because I've been doing it for so long, you know? And I felt, you know, comfortable around the kids because the kids will accept you no matter what, as opposed to other people. Uh, why, why would they accept you? Well, you know, you can tell a kid, listen, I made a mistake, I did this. And a kid would probably look at it and say, well, you know what, he's not a bad person. As opposed to telling an adult, an adult would probably be, <laughs> like, more skeptical, would look at you different, would probably try to get you fired, you know. I don't want to be around this guy. He's a murderer, you know? So things like that came up in my mind. 
We're talking with staff at the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence in Providence, Rhode Island. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Street Workers, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. My goal and mission in life is from what I wanted as a child, you know, the, the peaceful life, the, you know, the nonviolence. I grew up surrounding violence all my life. Tony Kim, 34 years old, has worked at the Institute for about five years. My family, my parents ran from the war, the, the Khmer Rouge War. In Cambodia. Civil War in Cambodia. Um, you know, I was born in a, in a refugee camp in Thailand. Uh, barely survived. I came out premature and everything else, and you know, came to the United States. When my fa- my family bought the house on in the West End, I witnessed a murder. Like the first month we was there, you witnessed a murder. Witnessed it. I, I witnessed a guy getting shot in front of me, but I didn't witness him dying. But I heard that he died down the street, and you know, and not long after that, there was a gang shootout. You know where. A couple of people got hit. A few people got hit, actually. And, and, and you were what age? Seven, eight. No more than that. So this is just a part of your life? This is just a part of my life. I'm used to it. I think that that's how it's supposed to be. But somewhere inside, deep down inside, I knew I had to get out of there. Like, you know, there's, there's a different way. There's, you know, there's something else out there. And, and what I wanted as a child is what I want to give back, you know, basically. Kids shooting hoops at rec night, a weekly evening of basketball, breakdancing, and food, organized by the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence and several partner organizations. Typically about 65 youths from South Providence, some gang-affiliated, attend and can have fun in safety. Institute Director Tenny Gross. Our tool is love and kindness, right? It's as incredible as someone who used to, felt very comfortable carrying an M16. How many difficult situations I stepped into. I had guns pulled on me, on guys behind me in Mattapan. I was in situation with Asian gangs uh, in, here in Provenant. How kindness and words make a difference, right? Uh, we work with tough shooters and gang members, and kindness... It takes a while. I believe in the theory of the walls of Jericho. You surround Jericho walls nine times, Joshua did, and eventually the walls fell. So this is a long-haul kind of a struggle. So are you saying that in your direct experience walking into a highly tense situation where violence is in the air, that the use of loving and kind language can diffuse the violence? Well, you gotta be careful. I don't want to. It's almost like one of those disclaimers. Don't try this at home, right? I, I don't suggest someone who's just left Walmart in Barrington in the suburbs, right? Walk into a gang conflict in Dorchester and tell everyone, "Look, I love you. Stop," right? Uh, we have been able to interrupt those situations twice when I mentioned with the guns pulled on us because I knew the people, because I worked with them. You put effort. You are non quantity. That's why it really we believe. The tool we use and ceasefire in Chicago uses and other people in Cincinnati and other cities use, the street worker, is you got to hire people from the community. 
to save their own community. We are not going to solve the problem of violence in the United States unless we're going to really substantially recycle human capital that the moment we incarcerate. We have a quarter of the world jail population. So we hire ex-offenders. We have four people on our staff who were involved in homicide. But, you know, people change. They were part of a monopoly game. They don't longer belong. And they have a desire, something stronger than mine, to give back to the world, to repair what they cannot repair. It's incredible. They'll work themselves to death to give back for a misjudgment they did in a different battle zone. How do you define what it is that you want to give back? A role model, a good role model, someone to, to, to look up to. Street worker Tony Kim. Someone to tell me that, or tell them, you know, don't do it. You know, there's better things out there. You know, it's, it's you know, there's a light, you know, on the other side of the tunnel, you know. Um, Why would they believe you? The experience that I had, you know, I, um, maybe it's, the, rep, it's the, the reputation that I had, you know. Uh, you know, I always put my, my face out there. I'm, I'm the bully's bully, you can say. You know, I don't like bullies, you know, because I've been bullied all my life. And I grew up to be the bully's bully, so everybody sort of count on me, sort of, you know, where's Tony, you know, let's get Tony, you know, and, and I'll go, and no matter how big the guy is, I'll probably drop kick him in the face or something like that real quick. And, and so I, I built that rep, you know, and giving him a little bit of my past. So that gives you some credibility. That does, yep. Okay. And uh, what is it that you advise the kids? Depending on the situation. A kid who was almost killed in front of me, I walked in right on it, actually. I saw, I saw, I heard a gunshot. Where was right this? Right down the street from my house. And I, I looked out, My all my family was there. It was warm summer night. And I, I, you know, I went to check it out, like, you know, who shot who. You know, maybe I should call the cops. I don't know. But when I went there, they were still chasing each other. It, it was kind of a strange story, but this kid went over there because went over to the house to call this kid out, and he wanted to, to fight him, but he brought a gun with him. And he displayed the gun, come out, come out, we'll fight, you know, because the kid was talking trash about him, and he was tired of it. He said, you know what, I'm done with this kid. He's out there talking a lot of smacks, you know, you know, acting like he's a tough guy. I know he's a nobody, you know, saying all this stuff. And um, but while doing that, he was messing up a drug deal. There was a drug deal that was going on at the time. So the drug dealer said, you know, get out of here, kid, you know. I'll shoot you in the head, you know. And the, the kid was like, what? Try it. The, the, the drug dealer, he shot, you know, on the ground to scare the kid away. And the kid pulled out the gun and ran behind the car and looked like he was about to shoot back. And that's when I, I walked in, and I didn't know any of them. I was like, Wait, you know, like, you know, but, like, you know, inside I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to get killed. You know, but I talked to the kid. I said, you know, chill, chill, relax. What's going on? And, and the other guy was like, yo, get this kid out of here. Like, act like he know me. So he gave me his friend's number, and I dialed it. And, then, you know, and I, I told him the address. I said, come pick him up right now. He need you right now, you know. He's, you know, he's in danger, and he's like, what? So the friend came, like, it felt like two seconds, you know? And he came, and I opened up the door, and I pushed him in, and he took off. And after that, a couple of weeks later, I found a kid. I found out who he was. I, I talked to the guy who he was there for, you know, to fight. 
and found the other kid, tried to do a mediation, sort of. He said, I'll leave it alone as long as he don't say anything about me no more, you know. And Now, did you yeah. bring anybody else in, or did you handle this mediation on your own? Sort of on my own. Um, that time, we was very um, shorthanded, you can say. But, you know, I helped the kid out, and I, I offered them to, you know, to go and find jobs. But what I heard is that he went to school. He's, you know, he's good, and he's out of it completely. And he built a whole lot of love and respect for me, so... I, 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 I take that as a success story. He could have been killed. He could have went back for revenge. Youth violence and gang activity don't occur in a vacuum. They are the consequence of societal failures and individual families with problems. Street worker Alfred Amuri at the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. It's more than just the youth. For example, we might go there and we earn these kids' trust, we'll go to their homes. And their mother their mothers might need assistance. So we would bring them to the institute and try to find the proper assistance, be it welfare. Uh, like for example, the Providence Housing Authority, because they need something fixed in their house that they haven't had fixed because they can't have hot water. So we're like basically where we do a lot of things. We're we're not only just for the gangs itself, but that's our main target to try to, you know, you know, stop the gang violence within the city. But at the same time, we help their families. We help their little brothers, you know. We, 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 put, we enroll some of them back in school. At the heart of the Institute's work is a belief in the possibility of transformation, that bad situations, even ugly ones on urban streets, can be made better, that people who find themselves in a difficult position, including former criminals, can move into a life that is more constructive and satisfying. Israeli-born Tenny Gross, the Institute's executive director, has done much soul-searching. When I was young, I knew I'm going to go to the army. I thought peace maybe is possible, maybe not. I thought, I really believed that Palestinians don't want peace and the Arabs don't want peace. And then you get educated and you change your perception. You meet people. There's reason why we mature in life and why we use young people to kill. And why we use young people to kill. How do you find uh, ex-offenders who have undergone those kinds of changes and have matured in those ways? Uh, and what traits do you look for to make sure a former criminal will be doing the right thing? Some of the most moving people that I know, and they're in Chicago, they're in Cincinnati, they're in L.A., they knew Bedford, and of course here in Providence and Boston, are ex-offenders. I don't want to cheapen the experience of soldiers, and I don't want to portray any disrespect to our military. Uh, as a former sergeant in the Israeli army, I'll always have respect uh, for the sacrifice people do. So I don't want to compare it, but I need to make some comparison that people have gone through the worst experience, and gang violence to some extent is, when you're shot at, when you free your friends die in front of you, when you've experienced that rage and grief. And at some point, you, and, and it's a process, you get enlightened, and you see what happens to your community, and you feel that you contributed to that mayhem, and you become a peacemaker, someone who uses love and words that gives you such a rich motivation and experience, such credibility, 
such life motivation, such understanding and intensity, that those are some of the most remarkable people that I have around me. Uh, a lot of people, though, would react that because of the notoriously high rate of recidivism among people who have been incarcerated, that you're taking a gamble when you hire people with that background to go onto the street and interact again with gangs. Is that a concern? It is a concern. We had street workers rearrested. Every city had. You know, but in Rhode Island, actually, you could say there's more officers and more state reg- uh, legislators who are, uh, are rearrested. I mean, you got risk in every field. I mean, people uh, commit crime in Wall Street, you know. I mean, I would ask a society, I mean, I know the answer to myself. It's a rhetorical question. Can we afford not to recycle this human capital? We have increased our jail rates by 600%. We're producing more professors of violence. People who understand how to deal with society and communities through violence. Kenny Gross's faith that people can change for the better is inspiring to his staff of about a dozen street workers and administrators. He has the reputation of something of a human dynamo, a slightly driven man on a mission to take care of his community and to show up even when the chips are down. Alfred Amuri. He really does care. This is a man who does not sleep, who will be at every shooting. He will be talking to every parent. He will be, one minute he'll be on the West Coast and there'll be a shooting and he'll be on that plane coming back. He won't even sleep. He'll be at the hospital. You know, and put it this way, Tenny is a man who has his children, and he's the same person who's taking care of other people's children, you know? So you you find people in life that are special. From the, the short time I've been with him here, I've seen his passion and how he cares and how he works us to death. Believe me, it could be four in the morning. Tenny's calling me himself. Wake up. There's a shooting. Let's go there. I've been so long now with gangs. There's always a Shakespearean debate there to do or not to do. Inside the gangs themselves? And in, Yes, and within their heads. And the question is, do you have a positive adult who can tilt this, right? Or do you have the most negative leader of a gang in front? The street workers sometimes give them a way out. A lot of often, young people get into a conflict and climb a tree they don't know how to get down from. They're stuck. They got a safe face. And to have a positive mediator, just the fact that street workers are there, or the street workers know, in the perception of a gang, like, all right, now the adults know. It's no longer between us two gangs. So oh, we, gotta, we have a way out. Okay, we're going to have to stop it. The street workers know about it. You know? Sometimes it's mediating, reasoning, calming someone down, buying time. You know, a young person said in the rain one, it was a leader of a gang, to some of the young ladies, there were maybe 40 of us completely soaking in red, it was a mid- in rain, in the middle of a conflict. It was a Friday afternoon a few years ago in Kennedy Plaza, pouring rain, dark. He said to the girls, stop it, stop it, you're pushing us. You're pushing us where we have no choice but to fight. We don't want to die, we don't want to kill. Not so long ago, kid we worked with all summer long and end up in a hospital stabbed, you know. Um, and what's that like for you? It's hard. It's hard. And and I think and another difficult thing is that when when I go home, I still think about it. I, t- I take this job home with me because I, I can't stop thinking about it. You know, um, maybe I, I spoke with a couple of kids earlier on the day and, and I'm laying there thinking, knowing that he's, he's going to end up dead one day, you know, very soon. 
or because he's, he's going down the wrong road. He's, he's going down the wrong road, and he's determined. You know, so I mean, it's it's difficult going home, laying there, and and thinking about those things, and and and, and you know, and a lot of times our fear comes through. You know, and, and and that's what we're doing. That's 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 you know that's why we're out there. You know, is to do proactive work. You know, to 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 get involved in these kids' lives and 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 and, and try to be that that block. That, that roadblock. Street worker Tony Kim of the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence in Providence, Rhode Island. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck and to Megan Hall of public radio station WRNI in Providence. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Short Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Street Workers, is Humankind Program number 149. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.